narrative drive is, like story momentum and pace and tension. I think there's so many workshops on crafting characters and dialogue and setting and voice. And those things are all important, but you can do those things beautifully. If you don't have narrative drive, you like, you're not going to grab readers because really what, what is at the core of narrative drive is why humans invented story. And it's about experiencing someone facing challenges and making decisions about how to tackle those challenges and then either succeeding or failing. Welcome to Writes for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Rights for Women. My name is Ray Cairns. I'm a crime writer and one of the guest hosts for the year. And it's my absolute pleasure to be speaking with Ashley Collegian Blunt about her third book, Dark Mode, her writing process and how it may have changed since book one, and the challenges of writing with a chronic illness. Ashley, welcome to the Convo Couch. Thank you so much for having me here, Ray. This is such a pleasure. I'm so thrilled to be chatting with you. I read Dark Mode over just two days, and I have to say it's amongst my favourite crime reads this year. Oh, that's such a compliment. Thank you. It's compulsive, it's clever, intense, and totally disturbing in its exploration of our vulnerabilities online. Can you tell us a bit about the story? Yes, absolutely. So Dark Mode is a psychological thriller with a dark web plot. It's set here in Sydney over a sweltering summer. And the main character is a woman named Regan Carson, who is actively avoiding being online as much as possible. Although she's getting a lot of pressure, both because her small business and from her friends and family to actually be online and to upgrade from her old style cell phone to a smartphone. And that's her situation when the book opens She's got this struggling business. She It's a gardening company. She knows all about plants. She tends to trust plants more than people. And she goes out for a run when chapter one opens and she discovers the body of a woman who looks very much like her right near her apartment. And she begins to wonder if this is connected to her past or not. And that's the journey that she ends up going on is to find that out. She's such a great character, Reagan. Like she's just so many layers to her and she's really interesting. What was your inspiration for her? Did you have that or did she just emerge on the page or did you plan her out or? She very much emerged on the page. I knew the theme of the book really at its core was trust, right? Because it's both trust in other people and then it's trust in the sort of digital and online technology that we use every day and that makes us increasingly vulnerable, in my opinion, but that yet we can't escape using. So I this book came, the starting point for it was one of the main twists. And this isn't giving anything away, but there's a moment in the book where Reagan knocks on an apartment door and she's expecting a certain person to answer. And that person doesn't answer, someone else does. And of course, she doesn't know what's going on in that moment. And the reader doesn't know what's going on in that moment, but I knew what was going on. And I had thought, I was like, oh, I've never seen that particular twist used in a crime novel. Like it might exist, but I just haven't seen it. So I was like, what would I need to put in place for this to, to pull that off? What what would need to happen before and after for that twist to make sense? And I... So I started thinking about, okay, what kind of main character would I need for this kind of story? And so this woman who like has all these trust issues came about and she was very difficult. Like Min, the other main character, her best friend is a true crime writer and journalist. Min just strolled onto the page. (laughs) She is exactly in the final version. She's exactly how she was in draft one. Everyone immediately loved her. 
Whereas Reagan, my writers group was very like skeptical about her. They said she was very unlikable. So it took me a lot of work to get Reagan working on the page. And now it's been really nice because more readers have commented on Reagan than Min. Like lots of people love Min, but a lot of people have said how much they care about Reagan. And that's meant a lot to me. Yeah, I think it's easy to love. But Reagan, I just wanted to look after her and to protect her. Mm. I was just, yeah, I was... It was a very tense experience, <laughs> but, but you do it really well. Now, I'm, I just want to try go back a bit to the, so your inspiration for this story was that plot point. That was where you yeah. started. Oh, my gosh, I've never heard that before. That is such <laughs> an interesting, like, to start, start with a plot twist and then build the story around that. I, you've done a lot of research for this novel, and I love the way that, you threaded true crime into a fictional novel. I want to hear more about that research because if you had that plot twist, then you had to build this whole story around it. So where did the other ideas come from, like the Black Dahlia murder? And, yeah, I'll ask you about the plants as well. Yeah. (laughs) It's interesting because I my first book was a collection of fiction and essays. And then my next book, How to Be Australian, was a memoir. Mm-hmm. And so after that, I was thinking about what I wanted to do next. And I decided I want to try writing a novel. And I've always loved crime fiction, like going back to Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys. But I never attempted to write it like specifically, although my first book, My Name is Revenge, definitely involves a lot of crime because it's about the Armenian genocide and also terrorism. But I'd never tried to write a crime novel, I think partly just because when you love something so much, I think there's this like hesitation to go in and make a mess of it. Absolutely. But, yeah. So I started trying to write this novel and I decided it was going to be like more general fiction, like contemporary general fiction. And, it, and actually, there was a version of it that was going sort of Black Mirror, speculative fiction, which I don't even read a lot in that genre. So I look and basically the feedback from my writer's group was like, this isn't this stuff isn't really working, which is not surprising when you're first starting out trying to figure out like, what is this next project going to be? And then I got the idea for that twist. And I realized, okay, that would definitely be firmly in the crime novel genre. So I also at that time, uh, I got sick in 2017. And I was diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome. And it was very acute for a number of years when I first got diagnosed. So I spent a lot of time in bed, like most of every day, every week, every month. One of the things that I was able to do at sometimes during that time was I could listen to true crime podcasts. And I really, I found that was one thing that just really helped take me out of my situation and make me forget about being sick and make me forget about all the things that I'd lost in my life. And it just totally immersed my brain in a different world. So I had listened to literally hundreds of hours of true crime podcasts. So I had all these crime stories composting in my brain. So I think that was part of it was just like this milieu that my brain had been in. So I had this plot point that I wanted. And then I thought, okay, there has to be a killer. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna go crime novel, I may as well fully lean into it, <laughs> put a killer in it. Yeah. And I'd been really interested in the Black Dahlia murder. So this is the murder of a woman named Elizabeth Short in Los Angeles in 1947. It's referred to as America's most infamous unsolved murder, although there's a lot of theories about who potentially murdered this this woman. And I tend to believe one that was put forward by a LA police homicide detective who's written a number of books about why he believes a particular person committed the crime. So when I had, when I said, okay, I'm going to write about a body, I immediately thought, okay, I really want to engage with this case because without going into detail, all these details are in the book. So everything I'm referencing now, if you read Dark Mode, it's in there. So this police detective, Elizabeth Short, one of the reasons why her murder is really infamous is because she was um, found uh, naked and bisected at the waist in this suburban Los Angeles neighborhood. And her body was posed in this really specific way. And so there's always this mystery around what was the purpose of this? Like, it's very rare in real life for bodies to be posed in a murder. It's like less than 1% of cases. We see it all the time in movies, but it's in real life, it's very rare. So I was really interested in the theory around why this was done to her. And I wanted to pull that like thematically, I wanted to engage with it in the book. So then that was the reason for pulling in the Black Dahlia and then At the same time, I was also doing research into the dark web and men's rights groups. So there's this sort of like when you get a whole bunch of ideas and they stew together into one perfect storm. 
that yeah. was a really mixed metaphor. But yeah. no, I totally know what you mean. And this is one of those books that you you read it and you've got to go away to the computer and you have to research half the stuff that's in it to go, <laughs> is that real? I need to know more about that. I found that was something that really engaged and stayed with me after the novel because I did. I researched all this stuff after I learned a heap. It was amazing. So it, that's an interesting thing that, that that kind of gave you the opening. I will come back to that later. I want to ask about the plants. Some of those plants in the book, they're creepy. What? Why, how, did, <laughs> how did that come about? The plants. So my mum works for a gardening company and I grew up helping her out in the summer. So we'd go to the garden centers and the nurseries. So I, it was something that I was familiar with, like in my sort of life experience. So I'd put that in as a possibility because when you've got, you, when you're like, I'm going to create a character. You're like, <laughs> okay, what do they do? What's their job? That's like a key question about <laughs> who are they? So I'd sort of put that in. And then I don't know where I stumbled upon this, like this was just serendipity, but I stumbled upon this fact that grass screams when it's cut with a lawnmower. It screams, it makes a sound, it's at such a high hertz level that we cannot hear it, like humans can't hear it, but scientists can pick it up with scientific equipment. And the first time I read that, I was like, this is made up, this can't be true. And then you start researching it and then you're like, oh no, there are scientific papers like written on this. This is a real thing. Wow. And then also they've discovered that plants, all plants apparently will emit a similar sound that they identify screaming. They will emit this like extremely high pitched sound when they're in need of water. And I was, I discovered that fact during the bushfire summer when we were desperately in need of rain. And the idea of walking around in the city and being surrounded by all these plants and imagining them screaming because they were so dehydrated was just like, I was like, oh, I need to use this fact. How could you not use it? <laughs> As a crime writer, you're like, oh, this is atmosphere. So then my mom's an amazing gardener, but she grows all the pretty, happy, smiley flowers, the roses and the peonies and the, all the lovely things. Um, but the grass thing made me start thinking about the dark side of plants, like the flip side of all that lovely sweetness. So like strangler figs, like when you're going for a bushwalk and you walk past a strangler fig, you're witnessing a slow motion murder. That murder is going to take 80 years. But there is a there's an organism that is being killed in front of you by another organism. Like it's being and it's literally being strangled. That's why it's called the strangler fig. That's what it's doing. I never thought of it that way. There we go. <laughs> this is how my brain works. In the novel. <laughs> and I love the way your brain works. It's great. My mother, my mother's so disappointed in me. And not only can I not garden, I like want to talk about strangler figs. <laughs> 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 so I was doing an exercise in a writer's workshop and it's called it's called a, a juxtaposition exercise where you take a couple things that you're currently interested in or working on or thinking about and then you just write one sentence about each so I was juxtaposing like I was writing something about my novel and then something about plants and I so I started just writing like questions about plants and I realized I'm like oh like this could be her thing she could be a font of all this information about weird and strange and creepy plants. And I can use that to craft the atmosphere in the book. Which you've done beautifully. It works so well. But it's interesting. So that was an act- as an exercise. That's so mm. helpful because it's sometimes when you're trying to find your way into a story, exercises like that can really help. Amazing. I found the kind of spectre of misogyny that was on every page of the novel that felt really disturbing and I don't think it's a, a spoiler to mention early on we hear from a different point of view in the form of messages I think email messages or kind of thing exactly what kind of research did you do into the world of these men who are in these areas just yeah I want to hear more about that yeah so this this is the men's rights, the manosphere, it's called the men's rights groups. And there's a lot of different groups that sort of intersect in terms of their ideology. So you've got pickup artists, you've got incels, you've got MGTOW, which is men going their own way, and then fringe groups around those. And there were, again, like a lot of it came from true crime podcasts was my starting place, where I started to get interested in certain crimes that had been committed by people who identified as members of these groups. And then I read... And so I was doing some online research and I found about this book called Men Who Hate Women by UK author Laura Bates. And 
I spent 10 years studying genocide when I wrote my first book. And like, I wrote two master's theses on the Armenian genocide. Like I've, I've read some like dark stuff. This book was like one of the only books that I've ever had to like physically put down and walk away from because it was so upsetting. And I think one of the things that's so upsetting about it is th- this idea that this is a very small percentage of men, but it's still like potentially hundreds of thousands of people who are all around us and interacting with us on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's what's so insidious about it. So I drew a lot of my research directly from Men Who Hate Women and also the book Troll Hunting by Ginger Gorman. Oh, okay. Yeah, that the Men Who Hate Women is, I think I was yelling at the book at some points. <laughs> oh my gosh, because it just gets worse and as she yes. gets into how it's all connected to media and politics and how young boys are being targeted in places like Instagram and YouTube, it's just, it gets more and more upsetting as it you does, go through it. It does, it does. And I was the same, I had to actually put it down. But if you're interested in this area, it's very important to read that book, I think. It gives you a, mm. a, a good basis. What was it like writing from the point of view of a man like that? Okay, so I get this question a lot. Yeah, I don't think this is the answer people are expecting. It was very easy because I'd done all this research, right? You know, it, it was really upsetting to read those books and to do that research. But then actually sitting down and writing it, it was a very easy voice to write. There's messages from one of the characters who's involved in one of these groups. And the messages are several pages. Most of them are just a first draft. Like they barely got edited at all. Because like that voice is so easy to mimic. And I think the reason is there's just no nuance in it like at all. It's mm. just like a, just this torrent of abusive hate. And so when you've read a book or two full of that, you're just like, okay, I can mimic this because it's there's nothing to it. Like it's so one dimensional. The hardest scene in the book to write, conversely, there's a scene, and again, no spoilers, but there's a scene where Reagan's in the garden with her parents and she gets a certain email. And that scene, like I still talking about it, I just want to crawl out of my own skin. Like it just upsets <laughs> me so badly. <laughs> I mean, it's you're almost going, no, no. (laughs) (laughs) The relationship with her parents is so intriguing as well. All the relationships, back to that theme of trust, you're really weaving your way through those and testing, I guess, Reagan's ability to trust in different kinds of people in her life and in technology and in the police and all sorts of things. I found, particularly in the relation to the police, that your well, and society, I guess, the stark comparison of the crime of murder versus the crime of stalking, and how they are treated so differently by the police and by society as a whole, and yet one kind of quite often leads to the other. So I'd love to hear you talk more about that and to know, did you set out with that goal to have that really starkly on the page or did you it just come about as you wrote? Actually, what I set out to do when I decided to incorporate the online misogyny and the men's rights groups, what I set out to do was to show the contrast between how violence, specifically murder, is treated by the police and society compared to the violence that's directed against women online, which has like for a long time was almost completely ignored. And there's one point early on where Reagan is having a certain situation and she goes to the police for help and they tell her, you know, if you don't want this to happen, you're just going to have to stay off the internet. And when I first submitted that chapter to my writer's group, because I have a writer's group that reads my chapters every month, which is fantastic. One of the guys in the group circled that line and he was like, oh, this is completely unrealistic. The police would never say that to someone. And I had taken that line directly from a number of podcasts that I had listened to where people in general, often women, but not always, had gone to the police because they were being targeted online. And that's literally exactly what the police said to them. Because the police, it's starting to change now, but for a long time, they just were not equipped at all to, to... Yeah, exactly. And they didn't know, like, they didn't know what a lot, like, there's, there were cases where people would go and they would say, I'm being targeted in this way, I'm being targeted on this website. And they would be like, oh, I don't know what Reddit is. Can you explain to me, like, what Twitter is? Like, they, they just didn't know. But the stalking thing is reflective of that as well. And I'm really glad that you picked up on that. Because again, it's, it, and Min points this out to Reagan in the book, she said, stalking doesn't always lead to murder, but murder very often involves stalking. Mm. And 
it's I think it's that thing of it's stalking is it's hard to identify. Like a murder is very clear often when a murder's happened, not always, but very often it's clear. Whereas with stalking, it's much it can be much more subjective. As the police, you have to trust the person who's reporting to you that they're that like that their perception of what's going on is accurate. And again, that is starting to change now. Laws are starting to reflect that in different countries, but it's much more difficult. And I think most stalking victims are women. Again, not all. There's definitely men who are victims of stalking as well, but the majority of them are women. And I think this is one of the reasons that this hasn't been addressed for so long. No, that's an interesting point. And very sad. Yeah. I will move us on now to the book is set in Sydney. The Black Dahlia murder is in the US, in LA, I think. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Why did you set the book in Sydney? Oh, I, I live in Sydney and I felt like I could write the city uh, most authentically because of my lived experience here. So like looking at neighbourhoods that I know and specific places. It was great because one of the publishers who bid on Dark Mode, the, one of the first things he said to me, he's, oh, I love that it was in Sydney because he's also Sydney based. He's like, I even recognize the sandwich shop. I know that sandwich shop. And I was like, yeah, it's a real sandwich shop. I changed the name of it, but it's a real sandwich shop. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, it really has a sense of place, the book. Like you, you do, you capture Sydney beautifully. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Now, I'm going to move into to talk about your writing more in general. You've written, as you said before, three very different books. Your first was a thriller novella and collected essays called My Name is Revenge, and I think it's just come out on audio. Is that right? It actually came out on audio a little, ooh, maybe last year, but oh. we're doing a promotion of it right now. Oh, so it's fantastic. It's a, there we are. It's available on available on audio and then your second was like a change in direction and it was a heartwarming funny and astute (laughs) memoir called how to be australian and now you've done a psychological thriller okay (laughs) how how have you brought about these pivots i hate that word but anyway how has that kind of come about that you've gone to very different areas I think as a I think as a reader, I was always like I always read very eclectively, right? And my writing definitely reflects what I've read. Like I've read a lot of I love memoir, I love creative nonfiction, I love books that are steeped in research, I love learning about the world, and then I love and then I love crime fiction. Like I love literary works as well. So I think that sort of influenced the writing style, particularly of my novella. So I think I'm just trying to figure out myself as a writer. I've just drawn on all the things that I've read over years and years. So I think it's so much easier Like for some writers who if they're like, I love romance books. I know I want to be a romance writer. I'm going to sit down and figure out how to write a romance. It's much easier than what I did, which is, oh, I could write this as an essay or I could write it as a memoir. I could write it as a short story. Or I could, like, I've just, I think I spent years just trying to figure out like, who am I as a writer? And it's been really rewarding. I think as I mentioned, My Name is Revenge really at its core is all about crime, right? Like it's, it takes different approaches to explore that topic, but it is about the most serious crime that humanity commits. And then I was getting into stand-up comedy. And so I thought, oh, you know, this, which is another thing I've always loved. And I thought, oh, maybe this is a direction I'm going to go. And so that's, then the comedy came into my writing. I wanted to write this memoir. I felt like I had interesting things to say about the process of developing an Australian identity. So, okay, I'll try this thing. And then one of the things that happens when you become published is you get to meet and talk to a lot more authors. Like most of my friends now are published authors. And so you figure out like, who's making money? I'm like who's got a sustainable career in this and you're like oh commercial fiction interesting maybe I should try that so I think that was part of I was I, I want to have a career as an author so you make strategic decisions and if there's five different projects I'm interested in doing it makes sense to think about okay which one has the potential to have the most commercial success yeah was it the same writing process for each did it start with an idea and then oh. research or no? Okay. Can you talk us through that? My, my first book, My Name is Revenge, didn't, is a spin-off project from a book that never got published, which was called Full of Donkey, which was basically a biography of modern Armenia. And so that 
book, like it just went through, it took nine years from when I started it to when it got published. And it started as I, my great grandparents were survivors of the Armenian genocide. And I was living in Canada at the time. And I was like, okay, I'm going to write their story. Now they had died 30 years before, but I had all the family to draw on. And I was like, okay, gonna, I'll go and I'll interview the family and I'll get their story and I'll write this moving story about fictionalize their their story. And then I went and did the research and I found out actually like so much of their story has been forgotten or was just never known and never shared. But then I was like, okay, but I could tell the broader story of the genocide and I could put it in the, the, this context. And so I ended up traveling to Armenia. I spent two months there interview. this goes on and on. So the book changed and evolved as I wrote it. Whereas with dark mode, and I guess there was a little bit of that too, as I was saying before about how it started as black mirror yeah. contemporary fiction yeah. And even with How to Be Australian, I think my initial idea was actually a collection of essays. I was going to do a collection of essays about different topics on if related to Australian identity. And then I had a mentor who said this would probably work better as more of a narrative if you made it chronological. Like, why wouldn't try it this way? And I thought, okay, that's maybe that's good advice. So I'll give that a try and see. I think I'm very experimental. Like, I'm willing to try things. And I think that's partly why I've gotten so far is just that willingness to try it a different way. So I guess on reflection, maybe there has been more commonality between the processes than I realized. Common trend. So you really do discover the story as you go. Like it's you're not planning, you're not planning it all out. Even with the next one, because I'm on contract for the next psychological thriller, because I am now hoping to stick with this genre. Excellent. That was um, another question. <laughs> yeah. So when we sold Dark Mode, it was sold with a one-page synopsis for the next book. So I had written this synopsis and I was like, oh, I really like this synopsis. I think this really works. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to write this thriller. And so at least I knew it was going to be a psychological thriller. I knew that much. But I started writing it. I spent 18 months. I wrote a full draft. I reworked the first 25,000 words about four times based on feedback from my writer's group. And in April, I threw the whole thing out because it just wasn't working at all. So I had to start over from scratch. One of the bravest things an author can do, throw away words. <laughs> Hard, but hey, it happens. I think it happens to all of us. And whether it's that first novel that goes in a drawer or whether it happens somewhere along the way. And it's good to talk about, I think, that people realize that we all go through that process. Oh yeah, God. I've got four books in a drawer. Yeah, I think most of us have got some, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm going to cut it there, Pam, and yeah. and then if... So you've moved into crime, into psychological crime. Why? What is it about crime that grabs you as a writer? Um, I think but partly when you're writing, you need to have stakes, right? And there's something about a crime story, like you have the highest possible stakes. If someone's potentially going to be killed, like those are the highest stakes you can have. So I think there's automatic intrigue there. I'm also really interested in the criminal justice system and our concept of like how we try to pursue justice in society and how that reflects our society back to us. And investigative techniques, like I just find like how investigation has changed over the years. Like 50, 60 years ago, there was no concept of victims. Like law enforcement only saw potential witnesses there was no concept of the victim other than if you were murdered and if you go back even further then society didn't even have law enforcement right so like crimes are still being committed obviously but there there was no investigative force i just find all of that really fascinating i'm interested in all of it absolutely i want to know more about all of that man <laughs> but i'm fine i'll talk to you about that over over a drink sometime but now i want to move into talking about prologues because prologues uh, can be quite contentious amongst writers and editors, and you use one in dark mode. So I'll start off by saying, what do you see as the role of a prologue in a story? To me, it is the event that sets the whole story in motion. Like it's, yeah, it's the event that sets the whole story in motion. And it's, it's like sitting there before chapter one to be like, here's what this is about. Here's the world we're entering. And then chapter one is, okay, what happens because of that? That's, yeah, that's interesting. So I now understand from something you said earlier that it's, it, yeah. you used the Black Dahlia murder as a basis. So we see that in the prologue. We see the, the murdered girl 
quite clearly and in a quite a detailed way. And yet the rest of the novel moves into a more kind of lurking menace. Does that, mm. does that make sense? What made you decide to do that to make the beginning of it quite, it's quite confronting the, the imagery because you do it so, you write it so clearly and well. But then you also write the menace well, but it's interesting that the tone changes. Were you aware, was that a, de- a decision you made or, and if so, why? I made a specific decision to be really clear about the details of the body. And I think in part because I wanted to show, like, this is something that really happened to a real person in the world. This is what was done to Elizabeth Short. And I think it's, I think it's for the reasons that I get into in, in the book, I think it's worth looking at the potential motive for that violence that was done to her specifically and everything that was done to her that I describe in chapter in the prologue I refer to as chapter one when I talk in the prologue everything that I describe is exactly what was done to Elizabeth Short and all of it was done post-mortem so it wasn't done to torture her while she was alive it was done to her body after she was dead and I think I was very conscientiously engaging with the trope of the pretty young dead girl young dead woman she's 19 or 20 because I wanted to reflect that in the theme of the book, which is that I, to me, what was done to Elizabeth Short is the most extreme example of how men use women's bodies for their own ends. And I think that's part of the reason why we're societally fascinated by the young dead girl is because it reflects our society back to us in that women's bodies are for men's purposes, whatever they may be. And so that's why. And I guess I believe that it's important to early in the book show the reader what kind of book this is going to be so it's going to be the a kind of book where there is violence and i'm not going to shy away from the violence but also i'm not going to force you to watch that violence being committed at the same time like yeah because that's an important thing i think to mention because quite often with quite confronting detail Readers will ask, readers have asked me about my books. Oh, is there, is it gruesome? Is it gory? Cause I don't want to deal with that. And I think that it's, that's part of the reason I raised it with this, because I think if you read just the first chapter, you might not realize that it's, the book moves into, it's important that that's there in that prologue, but then it moves into the menace underneath it. And yes, there is violence, but it's not, we don't watch it happen on the page. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I think also I w- wanted to have, I wanted to have the pretty young dead girl, but then I, she's not sexualized because she's mm. being discovered by a woman. And so the way she's presented to the reader is in this sort of almost sisterly. Reagan looks at her and she's, oh my gosh, this could be my twin. So yep. there's this sort of a seeing herself in that as opposed to seeing a sexual object. Which is a female reader, you see it as that could be me. You do not, do you, like yeah. there's a connection really there with that. So back to more generalized about prologues, are there any tips or guidelines that you would give other writers? Because sometimes prologues can distance you from a story. So I just, as an experienced writer, I'd love to hear any of your ideas on that. Interesting, because I have been told that there are readers out there who will not read the prologue. They'll just skip to chapter one, which I I don't understand. (laughs) I don't understand that. Why would you not read part of? Oh, I'm just, my, I'll say that again. There are readers out there I've been told that who will not read the prologue, and to me, that's just I don't understand why you wouldn't read part of the story. It's I don't know what they think a prologue is that you would skip it. Then it's just it's part of the story. But I did that through intuition, like I didn't. Mm. And I'd had people say, oh, you should change this. But then my agents didn't suggest I change it. Like, if my agent or my publisher had said, let's just make this chapter one, I would have been like, okay, that's fine. I'm not that, I'm not that tied to it as a concept, but they didn't. And I haven't had anybody say, oh, I started reading chapter one and I was really confused about this body she refers to. So I'm <laughs> assuming my wonderful readers have read the prologue, but I will say actually in my next book, I am just starting with chapter one for simplicity's sake. Interesting. I think sometimes with the prologues, people have experienced where it's, the prologues are an info dump, you mm. know, in, in some other books, and perhaps that's why they skip them. Because I can't think why else you would do that. Because it's that's yeah. an interesting point. Because I, to me, the best prologues are ones, 
And this is what I was trying to do that are short and sharp and give you a glimpse of an event that is the core of the story. And sometimes that happens years prior to the story starting, which I think is also a good reason to have a prologue. Here's this thing that happened years ago. We see this interesting dynamic thing happening in real time. And then the story starts 10 years later ever. Mine happens the day before, but I think it's, I think it's that sort of introducing it as to the reader is that this is what the story is. Yeah. And capturing as that one moment. That, yeah. So anyway. Okay. Yeah. Move on a bit to, I just, this is a podcast aimed at writers. And so I just wanted to touch briefly on competitions as I noticed on your website, which is a really great website, by the way, yeah. that you've won and been shortlisted for quite a few awards. And I kind of want to talk about the role that's played in your journey or landing p- traditional publishing deals and what you think that role was of those competitions. That's a great question. I think for emerging writers, it's helpful to develop a portfolio. It's not necessarily the make or break because you can develop a portfolio and be trying to get a book published. And if that book just doesn't work for whatever reason, if the narrative drive isn't there, and I honestly think narrative drive is like one of the most important factors in making a book publishable, or but it could also just be that it doesn't suit the market at the moment. There's something about the content, but the market shifts all the time on us. It's frustrating reality. So what I'm saying is you could develop a great portfolio where you know you've got some essays or short stories, the short works published, some awards or short listings, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get your book published. On the flip side, it does. On the flip side, you could have a great book, a great manuscript that, and no portfolio at all. And you can send that manuscript out and land an agent or a publisher because your manuscript's so great. So there's so many different pathways to getting where you want to go. For me, I think those short works really helped, like doing short works and getting them published and entering them in different places helped encourage me to keep developing my skills. Those little wins along the way, I think made a big difference to saying, yeah, you have potential. You, you should keep going. You should keep trying. And then specifically the fellowships, like being awarded fellowships to do writing residencies at places like Baruna, the National Writers House, or at Catherine Susanna Pritchard Writers Center in Perth. Those opportunities to go and have that dedicated time to work on my project was so helpful. But then B, I think also particularly Varuna, winning a Varuna fellowship is a indication to publishers and agents that you have reached a certain level in terms of your skills in your writing. So they'll be more willing to potentially read your, read your submission pile, for example. So I have heard that some houses, publishers, they open up to submissions. And then they've got this big slush pile, which is not a very complimentary term. And they'll have, so for example, an intern going through the slush pile. And one of the things they'll say is, oh, we'll pull out anything. Make sure to take a look at anything that mentions that they've had a Varuna fellowship. Okay. So yeah, that's really good to know that, that it has that impact at that level. So with these competitions, you've done a lot of short form writing and you've also written successfully in long form with your three books. So what... It, I can't write short form, so I'm really interested in how you do it. Tell me how. Oh, that's an interesting question too. I think whatever you're writing, you have to be reading to start with. So I read I read a lot of essays. I'm not good at short stories because honestly, I don't read a lot of short stories. I find short stories frustrating because I just get to know a character, I get to know their world, get to know what's going on, and then suddenly it's over. And now I've got to get to know some new character. And I'm just like, I don't want to know you. You're different. Go back to that other character. So whereas essays, I love essays. So that's part of it. I think as a writer, as an emerging writer, I worked at Writing New South Wales for six years. So I got to know a lot of emerging writers and I got to know the industry really well from that experience. And I think a lot of emerging writers are under this conception that short stories can teach you writing skills. And I think that's both true and false because yes of course like practicing your writing practicing any kind of writing will help develop your writing skills for sure but short stories it can be as difficult to write a good short story as a novel like just because it's short yeah that's why i asked the question because i can't do it i find it very challenging to do a short story and yeah i'm 
Interesting. I, short stories are, I think, other than poetry, which is just a whole other realm of writing. But within narrative writing, short stories are, I think, the most complex and challenging form. And they, they, they look deceptively simple and they're short. So it's, oh, okay, this is what I should be doing to learn. But I would suggest if you want, if you really want to write a book, start learning how to write scenes because that's one of the ways that short stories and long form really differ and probably why you write great scenes, right? Partly because you have that acting background. So you are, I can imagine that you're throwing yourself into a scene, which is building a whole world, which isn't suited necessarily to a short story. They are very different. Like short stories might have scenes in them, like for sure. But the way you craft scenes for a long form work, whether that's memoir or fiction, I think is different than how you craft a short story. So I think that's where some of that challenge comes in. Yeah. Oh, thank you. That was helpful. Now, I want to circle back to, you mentioned before about chronic fatigue and I'm interested, I've obviously, I, it's a topic close to my heart writing with a chronic illness because I was diagnosed with RA during my writing process as well. And I want to know what that has meant for you as a writer. Has it changed you as a writer? It changed one big thing for me, which was that before I got sick, I had this really miserable desperation around my writing, which is that like I just desperately wanted to succeed at it, which meant for me getting published and making enough money that I could live on my writing, which is a huge ask. That's a, that's a huge thing. And it's actually quite rare. Like it's not rare to be published, but it is rare to make the kind of money that you can live on. Yes. I had this like almost this stranglehold on my creativity. Like I loved writing and I often enjoyed it. But then I would feel so miserable about all the rejections I was getting because I got sick in 2017 and my first book came out in 2019. So I was still nowhere near getting that first book out. Once I got sick, it was such an extreme situation because my whole life just shut down. Like I, I wasn't able to do anything. I just barely managed to hang on to my job because they were so flexible with me. They were letting me come in a couple hours, a couple mornings a week and just when I could, which is in most circumstances, I would have just completely lost my employment and then I would have just been at home seven days a week by myself doing nothing. So then because I was in the middle of writing How to Be Australian when I got sick, I had this project and this world that I could go back to and it was filled with humor because I was doing, I'd been doing all the stand-up comedy. So when I had, when I was well enough, like for a while, I couldn't really do anything. But then when I was well enough to start going back to it in little pockets of 15 or 20 minutes, it was like, I got to be who I had been before. And suddenly that was, it was such a joy to, to have this thing I could do in the quiet by myself. Like it, it, when I felt well enough. And so I would love to say in, if this was a Hollywood movie, if that would be the thing that suddenly that's the reason I got published, which is not at all true. I ended up getting published when I did because I had developed the skills and had been applying them to my right and my skills got good enough. And then I submitted the right project to the right person at the right time. That's why I got published when I did. But my attitude, like in, in the internal shift was huge. And I still like to me now, like, my writing is this thing that like is who I am. It's my identity. It's my passion. It's I get I take that meaning from it. Oh, interestingly, it helped you embrace that more. Yeah, mm-hmm. rather than get caught up in the business side of writing and that. Did you have any concerns ab- about traditional publishers taking you on? It's a genuine question because it's something I get asked a bit. In relation to, because you, there's this whole book a year idea and there's the, that authors need to do a lot of their own PR and generate a lot of their own PR. So did you have any concerns about being very open about having chronic fatigue? I was really lucky in that I have been progressively getting better since I was diagnosed in 2017. And so by the time you know, my first book was a very small publication. My next book came out during COVID. So like it was signed before COVID to be fair, but it also wasn't going to be a lead title and it was a memoir. So there was no expectation of book a year thing. 
So then by the time my commercial fiction work came out, which is when that question did come up of how much time do you think you would need to write the next book? Mm -hmm. And it was never asked in the context of because you're sick. I think it was a question they would have asked me regardless. I had said, I think a book a year would be too much for me, but I could probably do 18 months. And I was ended up being given two years by my publisher, which was which was worked out really well because, like I said, I just threw out that whole manuscript, so <laughs> that extra time is really going to help me out now. But I think I was I'm in a very privileged situation, which is that my husband makes a good income, so I am able to do just as much as I can in terms of publicity and use my energy for that, and I don't have to then say no to writing opportunities. Because I have to go to a job, for example. So you can so change your energy where it's needed, but then also have the downtime that you need. Because I think that's exactly. certainly been my experience of having a chronic illness and writing. And again, I'm in the same position as you. I have a partner that can support me through it financially. So I feel very lucky with that. Are there any resources you can point other writers who are dealing with the challenge of writing and a chronic illness or other type of illness you can start with your podcast if you'd laugh (laughs) i was gonna say actually so i have a podcast called james and ashley stay at home which i co-host with author james mackenzie watson who is the penguin literary prize winning author denizen uh and we our podcast is about creativity writing and health we have a fabulous episode with ray cans who talks about her experiences dealing with ra and writing and yeah, we interviewed a number of different writers who, many of whom, not all of whom, but many of whom deal with some form of chronic illness, whether that's mental illness or physical illness or both. And recently I've realized that really the intersection of creativity and health challenges is that both force you to confront the more challenging aspects of your own personal psyche and to push past them if you have creative ambitions you're going to have all kinds of obstacles and setbacks like you want to get published you're going to get rejected a whole bunch you're going to face imposter syndrome you're going to you're going to go through all this tough stuff and when you live with chronic health issues it's the same thing you get all these obstacles thrown at you and you have to find creative ways to deal with them you have to find your own path through that and so in talking to all these different writers and artists and creatives and we also interview We interviewed a psychologist about the anxiety around creativity. We interviewed an art therapist, which was her interview was fantastic. Her name's Karen Foxwell. We have heard all these different strategies for how people manage. And I think it's partly that it's partly realizing that you're, you're going to have to find your own path. But that you can, you you can rely on your brain. You can rely on your creative self to, to be there at doing that with you. And I think the other thing I would say is if you can, if you have this available to you, like getting a mental health care plan from your GP and having a psychological support, that's made a huge difference for me. Like having someone I can talk to about my challenges, both in terms of my creativity and my health has made just a world of difference. So I'd I'd highly recommend that professional help is out there. So if you can access it, it's worth the time and effort. That's a fantastic tip and I couldn't agree more. It'd be remiss of me not to ask Pam's favourite questions for writers. Firstly, what is at the heart of your writing? Ah, I've realised that the connection between all three of my books is this idea of being misseen. Because genocide is about people who are targeted, they're labeled and targeted because they've been identified as inferior and undesirable for whatever reason. How to be Australian, completely different because it's about a Canadian moving to Australia and trying to develop an Australian identity. But it really what drove that was this feeling of not belonging here. And when I felt most that I didn't belong was when I opened my mouth and my accent came out. And people would identify me as not of here, which is fine. That's a, you're perfectly welcome to ask me where I'm from and about my accent. But when I felt most vulnerable about that, it was it reminded me that I needed to figure out how to feel comfortable here because I was being seen as not of here, like I was being misseen. Mis- and then dark mode is about... It, Connecting, uh, going back to that idea of labeling people as inferior and seeing them 
as less valuable. And so the heart of all my work is about how we as individuals try to make ourselves seen for who we truly are and the challenge of that. Why well, I love reading it. <laughs> You're right. Last question. What advice, if any, do you have for aspiring authors? Oh, so much advice. I really do think understanding narrative drives. If you're writing anything narrative, whether fiction or nonfiction, short story, understanding what narrative drive is, like story momentum and pace and tension. I think there's so many workshops on crafting characters and dialogue and setting and voice. And those things are all important, but you can do those things beautifully if you don't have narrative drive. You like, you're not going to grab readers because really what, what is at the core of narrative drive? is why humans invented story. And it's about experiencing someone facing challenges and making decisions about how to tackle those challenges and then either succeeding or failing. That's the core of story. And that's the core of narrative drive. And understanding that and how to employ that most effectively in your writing is, I think, the most important thing. And that was really the turning point for me when I went from not able to get any of my manuscripts, I have all those manuscripts in the drawer, not able to get any of them published to now every manuscript I've written since I learned that has been published. Thank you. I've so enjoyed chatting with you, Ashley. Thanks for coming on Rights for Women podcast and for sharing so much with us. And huge congratulations on Dark Mode. I can't wait to read your next book. Oh, thank you so much, Ray. This has been a wonderful. I loved being here. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.